be back in Milwaukee, uh, as I would say. I grew up here most of my life. I did uh, most of my, almost all of my, all my college education at Marquette, and it's amazing to be back here. Uh, I love working with 88.9, all the partners that we have, and you know, while we were on the topic, I'm, I know I'm not exactly the picture of diversity. So for for programs, especially introducing science, technology, engineering, and math to kids, especially underprivileged kids, especially in a place like Milwaukee that is traditionally very, very segregated, it is more important now than it ever has been to get kids, young people, interested in science, technology, engineering, and math because unfortunately, oftentimes they're told that it's just not for them or something like that. So let's give a round of applause for all of our participants. Right now that I haven't that hasn't come out yet that 
he said on a PowerPoint. It's going to be very dynamic. Um, it's going to be a lot of pictures. Uh, so, so also, we will have time for some Q&A at the end of this, uh, and I, I hope to hear from, from you if you have a question. So if you have a question, please hold it in your mind and wait until the end of the presentation, and then make sure it's a question, and then ask it. You'd be surprised how often it's a statement. It is 50%. So let's begin. Um, uh, you, young man with a lightning bolt on your shirt, what's your favorite superhero? Uh, Spider-Man. Wow! <laughs> I did not expect that to happen. Go right. We're going to talk about Spider-Man for a second. Lucky you. Wow. I had a whole gag here where I was like, no, it's not. Uh, <laughs> all right, well. How strong is Spider-Man's self specifically? Well, where do we start? Well, with this kind of analysis, what we want to do, if we're super geeks trying to learn about science and use uh, pop culture as a teaching method, we want to be very rigorous in the way that we approach these nerdy questions. So where would we start? This is the process, this is the part of the process that I like best. Figuring out what we can actually calculate, what we can actually estimate, and what we can learn. So, Peter Parker's comic book silk. Hmm. Its strength is going to have to depend on how thick it usually is, just the properties of it. It doesn't have to be very strong if it's always super thick. And it, does, and it has to be mega, mega strong if it's very thin. That makes sense. So looking at the films and the comic books and video games, the new one's great, by the way, uh, it looks like Spider-Man's silk is about a pencil width wide. Sure, why not? We all have pencils, usually. Uh, so you can take a pencil or you can take a ruler. Kids, on your, it's, it's like that thing in your phone that tags with a laser. Oh, um, wow. I know. What? No one has rulers anymore. I carry one with me. Um, so if you take a ruler, you measure it's about seven millimeters across, diameter cell at seven millimeters. That's not so thick, that's pretty thin. That gives us an idea that, that spider silk should be pretty strong. So that's just three square centimeters, just to give you a number. I said there would be math, there is not. So now, well now we need to know how much force spider silk would be under, for example, or basically how heavy Spider-Man is. Well, according to Marvel, Spider-Man isn't all that jacked. He's either a teenage boy, or a pile of dust, or... <laughs> Divide 75 kilograms or so by the uh, cross-sectional area and we get 
every million pascals, which is just the SI unit of pressure, or 3,400 pounds per square inch. To give you some kind of idea of that, the comparison is not uh, great, but uh, the uh, the pounds per square inch inside a scuba tank, which if you shoot will explode, is about 33,000 psi or so. So uh, it's it's a lot of pressure. This is a lot of pressure to put on something that is just as thick as a pencil. The question is now, does anything on Earth have some kind of strength that approaches that? Well, guess what? Spider silk is more than strong enough. And I'm not talking about uh, pop culture spider silk. I'm just talking about regular old spider silk. The dragline spider silk. They call it dragline. Uh, sometimes you know, you, they used to float around and they make webs. The dragline spider silk uh, can handle somewhere on the order of 2 billion pascals. So for you non-mathematically inclined people, <laughs> this number is much larger than this number. <laughs> That's how I like to look at it. There's more zeros there. So that gives us an idea that spider silk is very, very strong, at least in comparison to what it needs to handle. So now, we can apply this, what we learned, what spider silk, uh, Peter Parker's spider silk would need, back to the canon and the comic books to see if we can, you know, learn a little bit more. And it turns out that with the width, with the width that Spider-Man is using, Peter Parker could easily swing around on spider silk and it also regular spider silk and it also means that a length of spider silk that is thinner than a needle could support most of your weights individually. Um, that's so cool to me and why hasn't anyone tried it? It's probably because it's hard to milk a spider. <laughs> it is. Google it. They tried putting spider proteins in goats and having you can you can look it up. Um, it's weird. Um, so once you dig into the numbers on stuff like this, uh, you often realize, or at least I do, you realize how amazing the natural world already is, uh, how spectacular it is, even if you want to say. Um, and since I first started doing Spider-Man episodes, I've done a lot more since then. And Spider Silk is even more amazing than I initially thought. Not only can it hold the Spider-Man, it can extend about 40% of its length, almost you know, half its length again, before it breaks, meaning that it probably could have saved Gwen Stacy, who was caught by the ankle by Spider-Man, uh, and then had whiplash and snapped her neck in the comics. It's a very, very famous scene. Um, but Spider-Silk stretches enough that he probably could have saved her if he wanted to. Also, <laughs> it's comics, it's comics, it's fine. Narrative can take the place of perfect accuracy sometimes, that's fine. And we can get into that later, about like science advising and stuff. But, um, also, Spider-Silk can stop a train, like in Spider-Man 2, if you had a few hundred threads. Not so bad. Spider-Silk is amazing. It makes you appreciate real stuff even more when you look into the fictional stuff. So, Analyses like these feel like doing the kind of homework that I always hoped that I would get in school, except now I do it for a living. Um, and I've seen a lot of success for any of you teachers or future teachers, I know some of you are back there, any future teachers, um, approaching problems in this way, using stuff that people are already interested in and excited about as a basis for learning, um, makes that learning easier. It's an information theory if you want to get technical about it, but it's it's easier to hang information on something that's already there, like a mental scaffolding, scaffolding, if you will. And all science is, really, I know it can sound technical, but all it is, really, is just a way of rigorously asking good questions. Good questions, like what is it made of? And I know that sounds simple. 
Well, I mean, again, he's dust now, but like what was, <laughs> deal with it. Um, but what, what was group made of? Um, well, that's the same thing as, oh, it used to be simple. Uh, that's the same thing as asking, what is a majority of a tree made of? Where does a tree get most of its stuff? Well, I'll give you a hint, it's one of these. So it's either, it's, it's gotta be either water or air or the soil nutrients, stuff it can drag out of the soil or it gets from sunlight somehow. So think about it for a second. Where does a tree get most of its mass? Well, it's not water and it's not soil nutrients and it's not sunlight. Hmm. Trees actually get the majority of their mass straight out of the air from carbon dioxide. So uh, when photosynthesis, as I'm sure you've heard of, occurs in a tree, what's happening is that the, uh, the tree is taking hydrogen atoms out of the water, H2O, and it's using carbon in the carbon dioxide. It's combining it with a little bit of energy to make uh, a sugar that it helps to grow and you know, uh, supply and feed the tree. Carbon atoms, if you look at some of you have periodic table of elements on, if you look at it, carbon is much heavier than hydrogen. So, given that it's using so much uh, carbon in these carbohydrates, if you want to be nasty about it, which I do, um, it's a Janet Jackson reference. Um, <laughs> scientists now know that 90% of a tree comes straight out of the air, which is weird, right? It, it's kind of counterintuitive in a way, but it makes sense when you think about it. Beautiful thing about science is this took scientists literally hundreds of years to pin down where all the mass is coming from. And we can Google it now. <laughs> science is a progressive body of knowledge. That's why it's so amazing uh, to me and why, why it works so well. So uh, Groot is mostly made out of air, but I am carbon. Doesn't really have the same <laughs> I'm Vin Diesel. I was only in the studio for one day. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know the Fast and the Furious movies, it's not even his shoe, they just have a shoe double. Busting all those Hollywood myths. Um, so when you look at science a different way, especially in answering uh, really nerdy questions, to me, I think you make science, just by association, a little bit more entertaining. Sometimes science has an image problem. Um, especially uh, for young people, in my experience, who don't think science is for them traditionally. But if we can answer really silly or really uh, weird questions like this, I want it to become really clear to them, and maybe even some of you, that this kind of questioning extends to everything. Yes, we can ask what Groot is made out of, but we can also ask the same kind of questioning can ask what cures cancer, or how do we get humans to Mars? But right now, let's keep going with superheroes. I wonder if this is going to happen again. You, Matt. Yes, you. Who's your favorite superhero? Yes! <laughs>
another weird question. And it sounds weird, I know. But what do we know about the Hulk? Well, basically, he's really strong and, and, he, and he's big. But if you think about his powers in a more realistic way, why does he look the way that he does? Why isn't he just a large Bruce Banner? Well, this is going to also sound weird. Probably most of what I said sounds weird. But have you ever gotten a really bad bruise? Well, what happens when you get a really bad bruise, right? It changes color, it can be a really deep color at first, and then it fades away. Um, it may start out red or purplish or even like dark black, and then it may get yellow, and then it turns kind of green. But why does a bruised banner, wow, I just thought of that. <laughs> oh. Well, when you get a really bad bruise, the red or black color that you see is from the cells underneath your skin, the blood cells, uh, that have broken free from uh, the capillaries, if you want to be all British about it, um, from, from your skin. I like it. I like that way better. Um, but the bruise eventually goes away because your body starts cleaning up those cells that were reddish and brownish. It starts moving in a way, changing the wavelengths of light that are absorbed, and then you poop out the, all those red blood cells. That's actually why you're... Poops brown. Um, it's red blood cells. I'm getting off track. So, one of the breakdown products at the end of this process is bilirubin, and it just happens. The structure, the chemical structure, just happens when light comes down, shines down like from this projector onto this chemical structure. It reflects green light. Now, could this have anything to do with why the Hulk is green? Well, what happens when he gets bigger? I would imagine that when the Hulk gets bigger. His muscles would have to physically tear and reform and heal. His skin has to stretch. His bones might even have to break a little bit if he's getting that big, which means, to me, my favorite explanation is that he is a gigantic brute, which is why the Hulk is great. When he transforms, his body goes under a tremendous, tremendous? <laughs> immense trauma. There it is. I like tremendous too. Uh, through an immense amount of trauma and the resulting bruise turns his body green as it's trying to heal that bruise away. And we know that he has an enhanced healing factor as well. It's kind of gross, but teachable moments. We did it. You don't seem that impressed. I, but it's, 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 this, again, it's kind of questioning. I didn't even know why bruises were the colors that they were or why they changed color until people just kept asking me how his pants stay on, and I just, I just don't know. I still don't know. I would guess it's like 3% spandex, like a nice pair of climbing jeans. Or like a nice Lululemon. Alright. You, sir, recording me. You'll hear from my lawyer shortly. Who's your favorite superhero? Blue Marvel. Blue Marvel. Is that a superhero? Yeah. Am I missing something? Yeah. <laughs> Trick question. <laughs> it's Captain America. <laughs> I haven't heard of Blue Marvel. Is that one of the versions of Captain Marvel? Doesn't matter. <laughs> anyway, how strong is Captain America? If we had to ask, I'll look up Blue Marvel later. Then you look. Um, how might we figure this out? Well, we would need some kind of situational comparison to compare Captain America to. Well, did any of you see uh, Civil War? Probably. When uh, old Steve Rogers here, bicep curled a helicopter? 
Ridiculous. He just wanted to be like, look, I've been working a long time on this. We need one of these shots, so that's fine. How strong do you have to be to, uh, to bicep curl a dang helicopter? Well, let's get nerdy again. Let's make some estimations. Looking at the movie, which I did, it looks to be about an Airbus AS350, which, if you do a little bit further Googling, it can pull around 3,000 pounds. Now, how much can the average beefy dude or dudette curl? Well, some further Googling, world records uh, for weightlifting, that kind of thing, it's a few hundred pounds at most, maybe 300 pounds at most, which would mean that Captain America is at least 10 times as strong as the average person. Uh, yeah, I wrote this, I also did this presentation for like a bunch of like kids, and now this seems like I'm, that just seems mean to me now. <laughs> anyway, but we can go further with Captain America as well. I mean, uh, with, with any of these heroes. For example, in the first Captain America film, it's stated that Steve Rogers has a metabolism four times the average person because he can't get drunk at a bar after his, uh, after his transformation. He just can't drink enough to feel anything from it. And that just kind of begs the question, how much can Captain America chug? <laughs> Kids, sorry. It's fine. Wait till you're old. How much can Captain America chug? Well, uh, we can do the same kind of thing we did for Spider-Man. Look up his mass, and then we need some way to relate alcohol consumption to mass, to metabolism. And it just happens that that is exactly what blood alcohol content does as an equation. If you've ever heard of blood alcohol content, the legal limit for driving, or what have you, point oh, oh whatever it is now. Um, I haven't been back to Wisconsin in a while. I don't know what it is. Um, but this equation calculates that precisely. And if you do that with Captain America, with his mass, bigger than me, much bigger than me, and uh, multiply the metabolism factor by four, you input that he's a man, you input the last, uh, how much time it was before the last drink. Um, to get Captain America drunk, you have to chug an entire gallon of beer in under five minutes. <laughs> he can, don't come on me! It, it's, it's a superhero thing. It's a lot of beer. A, yeah, it's a lot of beer. It's a uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if it'd be like simpler times or something like that. That's a party start, brewed right here. Anyway. Um, when superheroes push the limit, <laughs> push the limits of human strength and human endurance, etc., they almost force you to think analytically and uh, scientifically about your own human's own abilities and properties. And from that curiosity, I think that we can learn um, in a more enjoyable way. So let's keep going. Some more uh, Avengers. I really believe in you this time. Yes. What's your, you? Yes, you. Favorite superhero. Batman? Uh-oh, wrong show. Black Panther! Are there Black Panthers? You say that. Your favorite hero is uh, Black Panther now. Uh, so this is, uh, so Black Panther here. This is a Black Panther. A giant, gorgeous animal, obviously. But, uh, Black Panthers don't exist. And that is not because the character is dust now. Um, it's, I'm sorry, it's just, it lined up like it was before the snap. Um, I, what I mean is that there is no species of black panther. 
There is no black panther species like there is a jaguar or a lion or a leopard or a tiger or a lion. Um, in fact, black panthers are jaguars and leopards. So let me explain. So sometimes when a jaguar or leopard is born, there is a genetic anomaly, something weird going on in their DNA. And in this case, what's going on is called a melanistic variant. So in your skin, you have melanin, helps determine the color of your skin. What's happening in leopards um, and in jaguars is melanin is going into their fur a lot. And it turns them basically into black panthers. And you can see this. If you look really close with the right light, you can still see that black panthers either have spots still or either have you know, uh, the striations like leopards or jaguars. So in reality, black panthers are black jaguars or leopards that joined a metal band, I guess. Um, but, so black panthers in reality are more of a superhero uh, than a species of actual big cat. But of course, it doesn't make these things any less majestic. They're absolutely beautiful genetic anomalies and super cool. And also, if you want to know how vibranium works, I'm done thinking about that. It's weird. It separates kinetic energy and momentum. You can't do that. We can get into that in the So, uh, I've been rambling a bit, so why don't we get to what I have prepared for something that no one's ever heard before. So, um, going into Avengers Endgame, and I, this is going to be an episode of my show, it's going to come out eventually, um, but all of you are going to hear first. So, how, does, how did Thanos decide the fate of all these heroes? So, obviously, the event that sets up Endgame, I don't care about, it's been a year. Uh, the big event that sets up Endgame is the snap heard around the universe, which automatically and randomly decides 50% of the population of something <laughs> turns to dust. Sentient beings, plants, bacteria, bunnies, I don't know. He wasn't super clear on that. I mean, he should have been. It was perfectly balanced as all things should be. But how could you possibly decide randomly the fates of trillions? Well, you may not be familiar with what's called a random number generator, but if you've ever used a computer, you are familiar with one. A random number generator, RNG, is some machine or algorithm or program that generates a string of random numbers, of course. And it turns out it's very useful to generate strings of random numbers for everything from uh, cryptography, like keeping communications or bank transactions secure on the internet, to gambling, making sure uh, that machines are randomized and you can't predict patterns like gamblers think they can. Simulation, if you're ever playing a video game, if any of your kids are playing uh, Apex or Fortnite or anything like that, random number generators are used to help artificial intelligent things happen by using random, random strings of numbers or you know, a playlist on your iTunes or that quote of the day website that feels like it's random, but you know it's, it, it can't be, because if you just refresh it enough times. So an RNG in your computer, uh, for example, or my computer right here, might work by taking the amount of time in seconds between your last key press. And that should be random, right? You can't predict when you're gonna hit the keyboard. It'll take that number, it'll plug it into an algorithm, and then it'll start spitting out random numbers based on that first thing. However, not all randomness is created equal. Sometimes uh, RNGs, random number generators, only appear random. For example, here are two conglomerations of dot. Now, which of these do you think is the random assortment of dot? Raise, raise your hands. How many think 
This is a random one. Perfect idea, Kyle, to stand right now. <laughs> and how I think is like, ooh, majority of people. Well, no matter what you chose, one of these, at least to me, feels more random. To me, without knowing anything else, this feels random to me because it's nice and evenly spaced, and this seems like there's patterns going on, right? But this one is actually the true random one. Sometimes randomness doesn't actually feel random to us. This, all these clumps, all these clusters, nature allows for that kind of thing to happen. Nature doesn't care what we think a pattern is. See how everything's evenly spaced? That's kind of a rule, isn't it? That cannot be random if everything needs to be just so or just right. So when we make RNGs for some of these purposes, like making playlists, they aren't truly random. They're more like the evenly spaced dots. They're only pseudo-random because they only have to appear random to us. And don't worry, I'll get to my point in a second. <laughs> but like for your play, your Katy Perry playlist, there's a rule in that that says don't play Roar five times in a row. <laughs> there just is. Even though you hit shuffle and you want to hear a bunch of Katy Perry, that's not truly random. It can't be because the developers know if it played Katy Perry's Roar five times in a row, that wouldn't feel random to us, even though randomness perfectly allows for that kind of thing. However, for serious, I'm going to go a little, just a tiny bit over, but however, for serious applications that need true randomness, like protecting the bank's international transactions or wiping out half the universe, pseudo-randomness just does not cut it. And it turns out that tapping into purely random happenstance is not that easy. Well, I say it's not easy, but you could easily be your own perfect random number generator if you wanted to, um, but it's hard to do so quickly. So if any of you just took a coin and aside one, a zero, one side of zero, one side of one, and started flipping it, that would be a perfectly random sequence of zeros and ones as it went along, and if you did enough of it, it would tend towards 50-50 distribution. This would be random, but it would take very long. Thanos' gauntlet cannot just sit there and do that kind of thing. It has to turn half of some stuff to dust like that. How could it possibly tap into randomness so quickly? Well, it could tap into the randomness of the universe. It turns out that many processes uh, that underlie our reality are truly random. You cannot predict them. They have no bias. Uh, there's no rules to them. A few of them, quantum mechanics is built on randomness. Uh, radioactive decay, if you're near a nuclear reactor, the particles that fly out randomly at random times or random directions. Uh, thermal noise, just like the wiggling of atoms inside of resistors in your phone or something like that. If we can, in theory, measure these sources of randomness and turn them into data, we would have a string of data that is truly random. And we've actually done this. This is a true random number generator or a hardware random number generator. This one. This one measures randomness based on components inside of this. So this device just measures how the electrons inside of the circuits are wiggling just based on the ambient heat of the machine. It assigns data to that random wiggling, and then it spits out a billion random digits per second. And it's very good. And we can use that in cryptography. So how does it apply to the to the Infinity Gauntlet. Well, when the Infinity Gauntlet wanted to decide to dust half of some stuff, maybe it tapped into the fundamental randomness of the universe, and then 
distributed a series of zeros and ones randomly to the population it was uh, interested in and then dusted them. If we want to be even geekier, we could say that maybe it had a few uh, uh, petabits per second that was spitting out so many digits, it applied them to everything and then used the mind stone and the power stone to affect some kind of change on reality. Of course, there are a few more complications that we could get into, and I will when this eventually comes out. But for all this, I didn't even know that true random number generators existed, that we could even do this kind of thing. They only cost a few thousand dollars if you want to buy one. And I only know this now because of a weird pop culture inkling that I have. And I think that's the power of this kind of approach. You can learn where you weren't expecting to learn. Now, we've spent a lot of time talking about superheroes and movies, and I had more to go with you, but I don't want to take up your whole evening. Um, but all we're really doing is using science to answer, answer questions that are fun or interesting. And science just happens to be really good at answering the questions you are uh, concerned with, that you care about, whether that happens to be organic chemistry or the biophysics of Ant-Man. Uh, but now, two questions that you are concerned about. So, that, uh, I guess that's the end of the main.